Oh, well, maybe I'm wrong. King Wade, Fox, is acting very weird. Captain Pike, Cisco's wife, Klingons, and the afterlife. Boimler, Tendi's dog, Ransom is very harsh. Four drive, Black Alert, Giorgio has gone berserk. Teacher, bad left, Edward is an idiot, Fox is dead, Wolf is wed, Chekhov's wearing red. Tita's cat, Kempak's cat, Q has had enough of that, beam me up, make it so, everybody let's go. We are Well, good evening, Trekkies and Trekkers around the globe. Welcome to the show. It is February 22nd, 2024. Obviously, it's a Thursday night. It is 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time. And we are live. And that means you can pick up your phone right now and let your fingers do the walking and call Trek Talking. Our phone number is 646-668-2433. And you're definitely, definitely going to want to call because we have a very special show planned for you tonight. We are going to be discussing probably uh, a a near-perfect episode of TOS, probably (laughs) a lot of people. (laughs) <laughs> wow. Overlooked wow. out of the pantheon. We're talking of about the way to Eden? I, did I study the wrong episode? <laughs> you, what? Damn it. This episode just uh, overlooked a lot. And, you know, is it possible that maybe it's a hidden gem and people just you know, jump right over it? We're going to be talking about the third season episode, The Empath. So uh, you, if you have opinions on the empath, this is your show. I know I have opinions on the empath, so give us a call and tell us what you thought about the empath. It's going to be interesting. I have some empathic trivia, trivia that we're going to share and see how smart you guys are, how well you actually know the episode. So uh, call, 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 and get in on that empath trivia. Maybe you know more than my Trexperts do. We'll see. You got a call, though, 646-668-2433 to get in on all the fun. We also have the fan scores I posted on our Facebook page to find out what you guys thought about the empath. So we'll also share your thoughts on the episode as well and see how close we came to you guys. It's going to be a lot of fun. But we also have our Star Trek birthdays. We have our fan shout-outs. And guess what? Cybok, yes, Cybok was on Strange New Worlds. Will we see him again? I don't know. Maybe, 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 maybe. We'll have to wait and see. There's a new Star Trek novel out from Dayton Ward that Charles is going to tell us all about. And we have some more fun on Star Trek news if, if we get time to get around to it. So that's what's going on tonight. I'm your most excellent host, Uncle Jim. Welcome to the podcast. Let me introduce my truck experts. We'll start out with Charles. Charles is out in Las Vegas. How are you doing tonight, Charles? I'm doing all right. Getting ready to start talking Trek. Even and though I'm it's Friday. Friday thinking, thinking Jim's got a Pinocchio issue with this episode. It, it, it's a hidden gem. 
That's all I that's, that's, I just got to leave it at that. Mm-hmm. You were there. It, it's <laughs> and uh, we also have with us from Portland, my, my triple play in Portland. We'll start off with with Eric. Eric, how are you doing tonight? I am doing uh, fantastic, although if I sound a bit distracted, it's because for the last four hours I've been searching for one of these sweet Vian cloaks online, and I just can't quite find the one that looks like it'll fit me right. But uh, I haven't given up. I feel like somebody makes one of these things. Uh, and you and like when they silver do, lame. Okay. Once got they it. find the cloak, once I find the cloak, man, I'm looking for the head next. Well, you gotta wait for it to yeah. be cloak first. Yeah. <laughs> and we also have with us from Portland as well. We have David the Donut Guy. How you doing, David? I'm pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, nothing much happening up around here, but uh, yeah. <laughs> excellent, excellent. And finally, but definitely not least, we have our very own Paul the Toy Guy. How you doing, Paul? Well, Uncle Jim, I'm in an unusual headspace today because uh, this morning I managed to endure an unexpected root canal uh, oh, procedure no. today, right? So, oh. uh, which I didn't expect at the start of this week would be on my agenda. Um, I thought it would be, you know, as likely as you know, cleaning cleaning the pattern buffers, but uh, that didn't happen. Instead, I had to do this. So, uh, perhaps a little. Uh, uh, frisky and cranky as a result uh and maybe uh, i don't know we'll see how the pain meds wear off but uh i it should, let's just say that i'm in an unpredictable mood mm-hmm. i love it well at least you have the impact to help you through right maybe. well you know I, i'm you're about to find out you're about to find out <laughs> all right guys you can visit our facebook page and pinned at the top of the page is i'm asking hey guys where are you listening from and all i gotta do is go there and drop us a little line uh, dancing emojis catch my attention so that works a lot and every week i pick some lucky listeners if you see a heart next to your name from yours truly uncle jim then you are going to be mentioned in a future fan shout out so eric would you like to dive right in and get us started with our fan shout out I absolutely would. I get so excited to spin that globe and see where we're going to end up this week. Uh, We are going to start out here in Pernambuco, Brazil, and we're saying hello this week to Jacqueline K. Audrey. Uh, Wow, that looks like a really cool area. I had never heard of Pernambuco before, and I looked it up online, and uh, I feel like it might be one of those places I'd like to go. So interesting and uh, for supporting us and for being part of our community. We really, really appreciate that. We're also spinning that globe over now to Sicily. Yes, from Syracuse, Sicily, we've got Lilo Moon Miniti, uh, who said hello to us. And we say hello right back to you. Thanks for being a Star Trek fan, and thanks for listening to our podcast. You know, some people... interact with us on our Facebook pages, and sometimes they listen to our podcast, and uh, we appreciate both. And uh, Sicily looks like a really cool area to go to as well. I, I've never been there, and I don't, I don't have any plans to go there, but man, I would love to go. Uh, so Lilo, thank you so much for saying hello to us. We're going to head up to the UK, to Wales specifically, and we're saying hello this week to Stephen Davis. Stephen Davis is saying hello to us from Tewin Ned. 
did I pronounce that right? Probably not. I tried. Uh, Stephen, thank you so much for saying hello to us from uh, just across the pond. And last on my list, I'm saying hello this week to Sabina Rossini, who's saying hello to us from Gavele, Sweden, uh, one of the places that I would really love to go. I actually have some ancestry uh, up there in Sweden. Uh, my great-grandmother came straight over. So, Gavele, uh, I to make my way up there one of these days and uh, enjoy your beautiful country. Charles, you want to spin that globe over to you, brother. Oh, thank you, Eric. But I'm coming to the U.S. sort of. I'm starting off with a top fan, Gabby Garcia-Mendez from Baja, California, Mexico, and says, greetings. So welcome, Gabby. Also welcome the top fan, Sam Sanchez, from Comado, Texas. Not familiar with that one. And another top fan, welcome Brent Harville from Chattanooga, Tennessee. Live long and prosper. He was well, Brent. And welcome to Marcellus Beasley. From New Jersey, giving us a U.S. flag. David, who's on your list? Yeah, yeah. Hello. I would like to welcome a top fan, Patrick uh, Donahue, Donahue from New Hampshire, USA. And I would like to say hello to Christopher Mogul from Minnesota, USA. Uh, next on the list is hello to Anna Findlay from, she said, greetings from Chicago, Illinois, USA, sending us a Vulcan sign with a blue heart, alien face, Vulcan sign, blue heart. <laughs> uh, uh, last on my list is in top fan, I want to say hello to Vail Gilkner from Texas, USA. Paul, do you want to spin the globe and have fun? I would, man. I'm going to grab onto the latitude. I'm going to grab onto the longitude. I'm going to give him a big shake and see where we end up. Oh, that sounds cool. Oh, wow. We wound up in a place where people know how to party. We are in Brazil, believe it or not, David. We are in Brazil. We're in Minas Gerais State in Brazil. And we're saying hello to our fan friend, Janos Konert Mihaveses. There. Hello, Janos. How you doing? Have you recovered from the madness that is the carnival that just happened there about a week or so ago? Uh, might take a week to recover from that uh, fiesta. <laughs> I've seen things get pretty crazy uh, down there, but uh, definitely a, a glorious part of the world to live in. So phenomenal to hear from you, Janos. I uh, hope you're doing well, and thanks for being a fan. Uh, moving over to the continent uh, of Europa, we are saying hello to uh, Heidi Schoholm in Onsala, Sweden. Uh, flag flying proudly there. Hello, Heidi. It's great to hear from you. Uh, a lot of folks uh, that are contacting us from the land of Sweden lately, which is lovely. So I like knowing that Star Trek is so well represented in the uh, Nordic corner of the universe. It's a top fan. Next is top fan Dino Manzon in Makati City in the Philippines there. That means uh, Dino is uh, interacting with us a ton and shrapneling Uncle Jim with emojis left and right. So that's how you get to be top fan. <laughs> or send Jim a you know, signed cashier's check. That'll work too. It's like whatever, you know, 
whatever method's easiest for you. But I love seeing that uh, Philippine flag flying there. And lastly, uh, we go back over to the continent there, and it's Ernesto Bras, who is from Portugal, who is also a big Star Trek enthusiast. Uh, we are all over this planet not just in the West Coast, not just in the Northeast of America, but we are everywhere, Star Trek fans, and have been uh, digging on Star Trek for, gosh, a whole lot of time. It appears that we've been digging on Star Trek for damn near 58 years, which is crazy. Uh, That's a long amount of time and quite a legacy of stuff to share. Right, Uncle Jim? Absolutely, and uh, I have got four, count them, four, Top fans, and they all have something in common. I'll see if you guys can figure this out. I want to say thank you to Robert Skexley, fan, and he's listening to us in New York, New York. So thank you for being a fan, Robert. I also have another top fan um, from uh, New York originally, but now currently resides in Oklahoma, Biggie Metz. So thank you for being a top fan to Biggie Metz. We also have another top fan. Guess where he's from? Syracuse, New York, U.S. of A. And we'd like to say hello and thank you to Jason Forker. And last, but definitely not least, another top fan, and he also is from New York. We want to say thank you and kapla to Ricky Mercado. And that, my friends, wraps up our fan shout-outs. You can head over to our Facebook page and tell us where you're listening from. Some emojis will help, and uh, maybe you can be mentioned as a top fan. <sighs> All right, guys, now we get to the, the highlight of our podcast, the hidden gem amongst the coal that we're going to discuss tonight. And, uh, yeah, this is The Empath, the TOS episode uh, 12 from season three. And uh, before we talk about it, though, just, just to give you a little reminder – In case you forgot, uh, here's the trailer for the episode. Are you responsible for bringing us here? She's a mute gem. No vocal cords. She must be an empath. Do not interfere. What happened to them? You are on schedule. Some further simple tests are necessary. You will decide which of your men we shall use. He's dying, Jim. One specimen will be sufficient. You will come with us. Now, if that exciting trailer wasn't enough to get you just pumped up about this episode, I don't know. I don't know what it would take because that was just end to end excitement. But before we get to that, though, I asked you guys on our Facebook page to to score the episode on the scale of one to ten, with ten being the best. And, uh, yeah, anything above 10 is a 10. Anything below 1 is a 1. Bear that in mind. 
Okay, Eric, what did our Facebook fans have to say about the empath? Well, Jim, this is an exciting week because we span the entire gambit. We have numbers both over 10 and below zero, uh, so I'm pretty excited. Top fan Brandon Moore said, I'm giving it, the empath, a perfect 10 out of 10. It's one of my perfect favorite Star Trek episodes of season three. Catherine Hayes was great as Jem. Hayes guest stars with Leonard Nimoy on Rod Sterling's Night Gallery. She will be good company. Jay Kerr says the empath gets a 12 in my book. Of course, we have to average that down to 10, but that's that's pretty good there. Thanks, Jay. Jay Gadone gave it a minus 2.7 and a laughing emoji. Except for a few good ones, just like most Star Trek TOS Season 3 episodes, this one was very forgettable. Top fan Mike Coping gave uh, said one out of uh, said one of the four infamous band episodes on UK television. Oh my God, I don't know anything about that. That sounds amazing. Oh yeah, yeah. All right, you, Paul, fill us in on that. I really like the episode, and I'd rate it an eight. Top fan John McCann said a weak episode for me, a four maybe. Top fan Jennifer Barada gave it a three for bullying the empath and not telling her the rules. Top fan Rick Tromp said 8 out of 10, underrated episode, a typical example of less is more. The dark minimalist set makes a strong contribution to the suspense. Catherine Hayes' performance is award-worthy. Or a great antagonist, a TOS Season 3 gem, along with Spectre the Gun, All Our Yesterdays, The Cloudminders, The Enterprise Incident, Requiem for Methuselah, Wink of an Eye, The Mark of Gideon, whom gods destroy, and most of the others. I once watched this one with my grandmother, a non-Trekkie, and she loved this one. Jeff Sprague said, it's in my bottom five, although when I watched it last year for the first time in 20 years, it was a little better than I remembered, but still a five. Dustin S. Wing gave it a two. Really saved some money on sets here. <laughs> Sometimes you can put two people in a cave like DS9's The Waltz and get a 10 episode. Sometimes you put the big three in pitch black and have them wander around with a mute. Top fan Carl Graves gave it a three. Boring episode. It's fairly dumb that the Vians are going to this much trouble to teach Jem about our heroes will to survive, which mostly seems to consist of what anyone else would call a death wish, willingness to gamble that getting themselves killed will somehow save other people. If Jem herself doesn't have much physical courage, does it even matter? She, she's probably good at other things, and supposing it really is this important to teach this one person about the will to survive, could they teach her about it with people from her own planet who would die anyway if she didn't learn? And Scotty, who in Space Seed hadn't read Paradise Lost and didn't believe in gods in whom mourns for Adonis, knows more about the pearl of great price than anyone else on the bridge crew. I'm sure Spock passed on all the attention that it deserved to the Vulcans, i.e. hardly any at all. That gives us, guys, this week a fan score pretty squarely in the middle, 5.4. Lots of tens. Things that ever death is zero. Pretty interesting. Hmm. Yeah, huh. it's all over the gambit. This one, you know. 
all over the place. So are you guys ready for some really exciting trivia? Yep. Uh, of course. And you know what that music means. It's once again time to put on your thinking caps and join us for Star Trek Trivia Time with Uncle Jim. All right. Are we ready? These are going to be tough. These are because, I mean, there was so much going on in this episode that I'm sure a lot of these things you missed because of the excitement. So I understand. So who wants to be the first victim of Uncle Jim's trivia? Oh, me. Me, me, me. Okay. (laughs) We'll start off with me. Okay. Here's the question. (laughs) Are you ready, me? I'm ready. Okay. What is the name of the planet? Featured in this episode. Tick, oh, tock, I totally know tick, that. The uh, planet tick. in this episode was called Tedium Five. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really challenging planet because once you're in orbit around it, it feels like you've been circling it forever, and nothing ever happens worth talking about. And you start talking in a really simple monotone. So, yeah, TDM5, I don't recommend it. Um, in my Yelp review, I would say, no, don't recommend. <laughs> avoid. Don't, don't avoid TDM5. Yeah, avoid TDM5. Instead, visit beautiful Minara, too, where uh, there is, like, uh, go-go dancers and, uh, <laughs> and lots of slushies available and uh, a pretty decent toy store. So, you know, I would go there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And uh, – who wants to go next? I guess I will. How about you? Are you ready, David? Yep. Okay. Here's the question. What are the names of the two researchers that the Enterprise is set to rescue? Pressure, pressure, pressure. Well, they were both doctors. Um, I want to say Link and... Uh, oh my goodness, what was it? Your Ojo? Ozaba, <laughs> Ozaba, there you go. Ozaba, that's right, Dr. Link and Dr. Ozaba, that's absolutely right. Eric, <laughs> you ready to jump in and and, uh, and take one for the team? Absolutely. Okay, here's your question. Why is the Enterprise set to Manara? To in the first place. Ooh, I do know this. Oh, yeah, Aaron. Think about your answer and answer it. So. Yeah, well, that, luckily, this one is actually revealed to us, I believe, at the very, very start of the episode. Uh, the Enterprise is sent to this planet because their sun is going like Nova, and they have to evacuate the science station that's on the planet. Hmm. Yes, absolutely correct. And guess what, Charles? That means you're the next victim. So you're the next one to come yeah. down. Welcome to Trek Review with Uncle Jim. You ready for your question? All right. Okay. Upon finding Jim, McCoy approaches her quickly and spot cautions him, saying that this species from from Monarch Four look like inanimate rock crystals until they attack you. What creatures are Spock referring to? Well, I guess in some kind of desert, I believe, on that planet because they're having sand bats flying around. 
That's right. Sand bats is correct. All right. We're circling huh. back to me. Are you ready, me? Uh, yes, I believe I am. I, I hope. I think. Okay. <laughs> I'm not sure, Jim. It's and a it's a crazy day. Who named the humanoid woman that was found? Gem. <laughs> okay, that is an easy question. Um, that was uh, the person who wrote the frickin' episode, Joyce Muscat. Okay, she came up with the name. And interesting, interestingly enough, uh, Joyce is one of only four fans, actually, who were able to sell scripts to the original series, the other being Judy Burns, uh, Jean Lissette. Arioste and of course David Gerald, uh, who uh, so yeah Joyce's good representation of fans. Um, she wrote the names of the episodes, and then I think she had it in a very uh, poignant moment. Uh, <coughs> Dr. McCoy uh, ended up giving that moniker to this poor woman who needed a job desperately. Uh, <laughs> so, Asked her casting agent to please, please give me a job, and but I'm going to be so wasted, I don't really feel like talking. Is there anything we can do about that? And she said, yeah, we can. Do, we absolutely. We have a great uh, thing that the, we were able to pay the writer less because there was less dialogue. So you have a wonderful character who doesn't speak. How about that? <laughs> Does that so answer? Was paid for a line. That that answer. All right, so I guess that brings us back to David. David, you ready for your question? Sure. All right, this is this is a good one. What does the couch that Jem is found on resemble? Uh-oh. Couch, couch. A much larger version, by the way. Also referred to as a sofa in some circles. Or a casting okay. couch. Or a Davenport, as my grandma would say. Or a settee. <laughs> what is it? What is? It? Wait. So the couch that we that she was sitting on was found on. I'm confused. <laughs> what is it like? What is it supposed to look like? Am I supposed to give a specific name? Yeah, it looks. Like it actually, it is this particular item, only a hundred times larger. It's even got the same color pattern and everything. It's just a large oh. version. I'm not a very big TOS fan, so um, oh. I'm gonna have to say no. Take a guess, I don't know this one. <laughs> Take a guess. <laughs> Eric, can you can you pull him out of the fire, Eric? Well, well, I can. Um, I must admit that I didn't I didn't know this like right With off the, the bat. But like when I go back and I look at it, I was like, oh yeah, okay, it totally does. Yeah, it looks like the agonizer uh, from Mirror Mirror, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Mm-hmm. Right the agonizer, though. How would that look like a couch? Well, in the same way that the the spaceship from Lower Decks there kind of looked like the agonizer, it just has like a I don't know. Go back and look at it. You'll see it. If, if you watched if you watched the episode and you look at the it's couch, got a side thing that looks like it. The, yeah. the color, the color and shape, and then you'll say, "Oh my God, it's a giant agonizer." If you don't know that. Go and watch Mirror Mirror and look at the Agonizer, and then you will, because yeah. it's they just I guess they were trying to save money, and they said, oh, oh, we got this little four-inch Agonizer, let's make it a thousand times bigger and call it, you know, and put Gem on it. They even colored it exactly the same. So yeah, it's weird. Okay. Huh. Weird. Oh, uh, Eric, 
Eric, that brings us back to you again. Okay. We already know because one of our fans already said it, but we're going to do it anyway. (laughs) So, Eric, what race are the two humanoid aliens that appear from? Oh. Uh, I believe, Jim, that you are looking for the word Talosians. Talosians with small heads, small, yeah. shrunken, raisin heads. What? Golf no, no, no. No, no, no. Of course I'm kidding. Uh, we're, as I said in my intro, I was looking for that sweet Vian cloak. And, That's uh, right. So, yeah, it's the Vians. All right. And we're going to wrap it up. Well, I have a bonus question, but we're going to wrap it up with Charles. Charles gets the final question. You ready, Charles? This is a good one. This I'm is ready. A classic one. McCoy's famous trope of saying, damn it, man, I'm a doctor, not a blah, 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 is said in this episode. What does Dr. McCoy say he's not? Huh. I'm a Jim. I'm a doctor and not a coal miner. That's right. <laughs> One of the highlights of this episode was when he said that. Yeah. And I have a bonus question. Yep, I have a bonus yeah. question that is open for oh, anybody. Yes. Oh, oh, yes. Hit me. Hit me. All right. What are the names of the two Vians seen in this episode? The two Vians in this episode are called Laverne and Shirley. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to do it. They certainly uh, are. <laughs> one of, wasn't one of them like They did it daughter? their way. Yeah, they did it their way, all right. They said, hey, uh, <laughs> let's break into the set where they shot the Outer Limits and steal some of their old makeup. And, uh, and <laughs> there's, a, there's a sale in Filene's basement on Silver Lame. Let's get a bunch of that and make our cloaks mm. out of that. And uh, we'll call ourselves Lal and Thon because that's just a couple of really hot names, right? I mean, really, uh, really, that'll that'll etch your names into the legendary pantheon of Trek characters that will certainly never be remembered. I never be forgotten. I mean, uh, yeah. uh, Lal and Thon. That's yeah, the that sound I made Lal during my root canal like... today. Can I just yeah. share that with you? As the guy yeah. is like drilling with a subsonic drill in my mouth from my root canal. I think I said lol and thon and you know, is everything okay? Is everything okay? Lol and thon. The only sounds I was able to make. That's how I know. The funny thing is that information is not given out in the episode. They're listed in the credits. You'd have to watch the credits to find their name. It's never said in the actual episode. And that, my friends, wraps up the incredibly awesome and completely entertaining (laughs) and yet educational (laughs) I didn't know a question, so I learned something today. I love the trivia segment. I think it's wonderful. It is. It's fun. (laughs) So now, now that we've had the fan scores, we've had some fun with trivia, we know what you guys thought. What did we think about this awesome episode? (laughs) So, uh, actually, Jim, uh, Jim, we're doing an episode. You're skipping a spot. I am. Yeah. 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 So we always do when we do an episode, right? Yeah. Oh, 
Oh, I, I you're did. Leaving a, out, oh my you're God. leaving out the cadets. That, Shame I, I, on I, you, Jim. I usually only do that for new episodes, but that's okay. Let's do it. All right, guys, it's time to get training with Charles. So take it away, Charles. Well, there was only a couple of things I picked out of this episode but did come to mind. When they talk about empathic in TNG, we start thinking more about the Betazoids. I expect they're a half-Betazoid counselor and her mom. And then we had one other character who did not speak, but he was to help and speak, and that was reason. Where he the had his, where he had his crew, his three that would speak for him. That's right. Yeah, I remember that. I, for, I forgot about that. Huh. Yeah. Actually played by a deaf actor, if I remember correctly. Believe yeah. So. And one of the chorus members was John Delancey's wife as well. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Huh. See, we're just we're just overflowing with knowledge. See, see we got that? we've reviewed yep. so many episodes at this point. It's like <laughs> by the time I get yeah, done with yeah. the podcast, my head's gonna look like a alien. He's gonna build an agonizer couch and sleep on it tonight. Oh my god! <laughs> All right. So uh, now now we're ready to talk about the episode. Oh boy! <laughs> Here we go. So, we're just getting started. Five. So, um, all right then. So I'm empathically reviewing the episode. So you guys already know what I think because I'm sending it to you right now in my mind visually. So anyways. Whoa, what is that? That's what that is. Yeah, that was something different. That was was a picture of Charles Charles and and Paul hanging off of David's nipples. Erase that video. Oh, God. Oh, God. Uh, Uh, That's supposed to stay at Trek Long Island, right? That's that's where that would be. Unless you, yeah. Yeah, that's that's loopy. Private thought. So, you know, know, first of all, uh, this is one of those episodes that I always remember as the weird one. It's like the aliens, when I, I remember first seeing it and thinking, what happened to the Telosians? They're yeah. like, you know, the because the, they were, yeah, they were so, uh, like, close to, 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 and but bad Telosians at that, you know, uh, wrinkles, I don't know, the, the aliens, I, in fact, I think Paul was right. I think those are the exact same aliens that were on the outer limits. Very, I mean, how they didn't get sued for stealing them, I don't know. But the, the aliens were strange. Yeah, there's a there's an outer limits connection we can talk about at some point. But uh, but yeah, yeah. there there I think they were like uh, budget challenged perhaps in this episode. I think might be a nice way to say it. Yeah, it's it's weird. And you know, I'm watching the episode. I'm thinking to myself as I'm watching it. I'm thinking, okay, these Vians are so advanced and they're so awesome and whatnot. Um, they would know that the sun is going to go supernova, right? They send the Enterprise to rescue two scientists, but what about the planet that's going to get destroyed where Jem's people are from? They don't care about that planet? Millions of people. They say millions. Right, and the Enterprise doesn't know that they're this planet full of, of deaf mutes living 
one planet over. What is this, like a Rathacon type of deal with SETI Alpha 5 and SETI Alpha 4? They don't know. I'm like, that's really weird. Why And and why would the Vians, I don't understand their motivation in this episode. Like, I so, rewatched it, Jim, and I still don't understand their motivation. I still can't figure out what they were trying to do. I really can't. If I if I understand this correctly, okay, guys, I'm in here. If I understand this correctly, there's the planet where the scientists are on, with, which has no life at all except for two scientists, right, and a dome on the surface. Okay, there's there, but then, according to the Vians, there's Gem's planet, which has all these people on it, and there are other planets in the same system inhabited with intelligent life, and the Vians can only save one of these multiple planets. The rest of them are all going to perish. And for some unknown reason, they pick Jem, and all the other people are going to die. And Jem's people are also going to die unless Jem, like, wakes up and, and, you know, starts miming or whatever she does. I don't know. I just don't understand the episode. Like, it doesn't make any sense to me what, what they're doing and why they're doing it, and why the Enterprise is worrying about two scientists and not the millions of other people on these other three planets. I, I don't know. Just weird, weird, weird to me. You know, and Jem, I, I think the actress did a great job. For, I mean, you know, emoting without speaking. But how did how did they know that she was an empath? I mean, he he spits that out like he's watched Star Trek before. Like, you know, oh, it's an empath. But yet, for for an empath, she how do they communicate? They don't communicate empathically because she didn't do that. So well, they determine they determine that she's uh, that she's an empath because he does a scan with his tricorder and knows that she doesn't have any vocal cords and. He knows that she's not um, uh, not psychic. What's the word? I can't think of the word. But like one step above empath, she can't like read people's minds and that kind of stuff. So, but she's clearly reacting to things that Kirk is saying. So at that point, he's like, okay, well, given A is true and B is true and C is not true, then uh, therefore she must be an empath. And he actually says she must be an empath, like he's deducing it. I'm not defending like the episode. Just, I'm just saying. I think that's that no, part just, is okay. Yeah. I, I, well, yeah. I mean, like how, uh, like how do they communicate? Well, how do they communicate? So, you, so like how are these I get the feeling that, like, if you had a room full of empaths or a planet full of empaths, they would make their intentions known, and the others around them would kind of feel that and absorb it and react to it. And so rather than it being a communication style that relies like ours on the person on, on one person trying to like blow information at another person, right? When we speak, we, we take information from our mind and we put it into another mind, but we do it through speech. When the empaths do it, it's kind of like everybody has an intention and the other people sort of feel the intention and it kind of, so I can imagine this in a society where you had millions of people like that, it would probably work pretty well, right? Because not only would you have 
the kind of benefits of understanding what people are saying directly because you can kind of feel them right away, but you're also understanding um, where they're coming from. So they, it kind of like does away with all the, you know, secrecy and facades and that sort of stuff that we tend to put up in spoken languages. Um, so, you know, I could see a, a planet of empaths actually working pretty well, but in, it's weird because they can't. It, it is hard for an empath, I think, to communicate information back to a non-empath, whereas the empath is actually in this episode able to absorb information that's coming from other people. She's like a receiver with no transmitter. Yeah, I, I would say that. She was definitely a few transistors short, for sure. I, I would agree with that. But, uh, and, you know, the Vians, they, ha- they had this, the, what the hell even was that thing? Uh, electronic, I don't know, dustbuster? I don't know. Some whatever they used. Um, yeah, I, I, I just don't have much to say about this. <laughs> but I, the, the, the soundtrack, I think this is one of the, this was like, like, would be like Star Trek, the motion picture of TOS. This episode was just loaded with music because every time the empath was on screen, you heard that music, and that's what you heard. So there was there was an awful <sighs> lot of music used in this episode. There was well, a lot of Jim, dark- it, it it oscillated between music and that weird like space sound. Like every time they were in the dark space, it was like yeah, just sort of drilled its way into your head. And and a, a lot of the um, electronic set pieces that were in the darkness were uh, repurposed from other episodes as well. Um, but what, I mean, what can I say? Um, yeah, the Vians were weird looking. So let's talk about the Vians. <laughs> so I got to ask you, I, I, because this episode is just a conundrum wrapped in a conundrum with, with an enigma around it. So we said that the Vians were kind of like dumbed down Telogians. And I, it's kind of true because the Vians were able to project a holographic image of Scotty coming to the rescue, and he really wasn't there. So the Vians uh, are empathic as well, right? Because as far as we know, only the Telogians were able to do that. But here we have the Telogian knockoffs, and they're doing the same thing. Yeah, I mean, it probably doesn't fit into empathic. That probably is more, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, guys? It's not psychic. It's uh, telepathy. Yeah, telepathic. Thank you. I just couldn't think of the word. Uh, So I think they're more like telepathic rather than empathic. Hmm. Yeah, and if they could could do that, then why didn't they name a menagerie gem and just put her in situations? Why would they go and get people and physically torture them and murder them when they could have do the same thing. Well, su- supposedly the explanation is really kind of like spewed out exposition style at the very end, right? Because the Vians reveal that they know the sun's going to explode, right? They know it's going to no- go nova. But they can't save every planet, but they can save the inhabitants of one. And so what the whole purpose of testing Gem is, is to make sure, to ensure that her species has the will to survive, if you can buy that bullshit. But that's basically no, the motive. That's, that's their motivation, right? So it's, it's, it's one of those, 
you know, uh, episodes that feels more like avant-garde theater than, uh, you know, uh, than science fiction uh, from my perspective. But that's supposedly, you know, they they have their kind of detached, uh, uh, you know, kind of cold-blooded, you know, higher motive. Um, what I would add to Charles's list of uh, uh, cadet training episodes that I was reminded of with this, and I'm so grateful I did not rewatch it, um, would be uh, Next Generation hmm. episode Schisms. I don't know if you remember yeah. Schisms, but it's the oh, one yeah. where the aliens have been abducting and experimenting on people while they're asleep at night, right? And they basically pop them out into a different universe and a different portal, and they experiment or torture them, right? And that reminds me of the Vians. Schisms is an infinitely better episode. Oh my God, my and subjectivity that, is showing. And that says a lot right there. Yeah, so there you go. But, I mean, how how advanced can this race be if they're torturing and killing people? It just doesn't. Jim, how advanced can you be if you're wearing silver lame? I mean, like, hey, 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 hey. Don't knock it till you tried it, brother. Oh, I've tried it. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, okay, yeah. so, so oh, sorry, Jim, go ahead. Yeah, so I, I I have difficulty accepting them as as legitimate aliens because they, they their <laughs> motives are strange, and uh, you know they're telepath. Well, they're yeah they're telepathic. They can create images out of nothingness, and I would have think that they could have tested Jim's people that way, but then we wouldn't have had an episode. You know, they, they, they create this, this situation that allows Jem and the crew to get to escape. Kind of very similar to what happened with Pike and the Telosians in the Menagerie, or the Cage, depending on which. And, uh, I, yeah, I mean, I don't know what... what the backgrounds were outstanding, by the way. That was <laughs> the blackest black I've ever seen. They did a really good job with the black. I got to say, really good. The lighting was top notch. Um, <laughs> you know, so yeah, I, I I can't say anymore. And I think I think one of our fans. I think I'm going to go with a five. On, no, I'm going to go with a four. Okay. On, I'm going to go with four point one. Because I know that Paul likes the death mold. Two hours later. Okay, I do enjoy <laughs> them. They are lovely. Thank you. So. Who, who wants to jump in here next? Talk about I, this, this I can, I, yeah, I, I can say if no one else wants to, it's 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 fine. But <laughs> okay. anytime, take Go. it away, Paul. Should I get it out of the way? Okay, right. Um, I am not a fan of this particular episode. Um, it, it was one of those ones. I mean, I don't know about y'all, but like, did did everybody on in the team here have like the laying on the living room? carpet watching syndicated reruns experience did everybody mm-hmm. do that yeah pretty yeah, much yeah, yeah. right yep. i mean i mean some some and you know my, our local affiliate station would show uh episodes you know every weeknight and sometimes on the uh the weekends too so you'd probably get a chance to watch i don't know between like five and seven episodes a week right and you'd watch them over and over and over because this is before you know even vcr has existed right yes i am that old uh, but, you know, there was just – if Star Trek was on, you'd watch it, right? This is one of the episodes that if it came on, I'd be like, oh, and I would not, okay? To me, there are three episodes of the original series I cannot 
put myself through. Um, the alternative factor, which is going way back to season one, um, and the children shall lead, which I'm not going to talk about. Um, uh, we'll save that for another special episode. Sorry, Mel. Oh, God, Mel please I. don't make me watch that again. Yeah, that is like <laughs> the worst. And then the empath, just because the empath at least is trying to do something. Right? It's like I think she wrote a episode that was well-intentioned, I think is the nicest thing I can say about it, is she was trying to say something arty about the human experience and, you know, and the idea of empath. You know, somebody who was an empath was a fairly new concept in in TV, at least back then. So it seemed kind of open and they were doing this whole minimalist thing and they're trying to like, you know, convey and whatnot. But it it really is just it is probably it's just the most depressing episode. I mean, it's just, you know, I, I, I mean, some people really clearly love it from the fan comments on there. And they maybe got a lot out of it in terms of, you know, no one's wrong or right when it comes to art. Right. I mean, some people love things tremendously and they are their favorite things and I don't think it's ever a good thing to do uh to crap on somebody's enthusiasms right it's like well, you know Paul, some of us love Star Trek 5 the final frontier it, and think it's exactly the you know Star. and we, and I we will kid take you that about it but but you know it's 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 probably not the most popular of the movies for most folks and that's cool right it's just like this stuff I like that nobody likes Right. I like a movie called Rawhead Rex that I think people probably would be like, what? But I love that frickin movie. Right. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff like that. Um, I actually like uh, I like uh, talking about zany Star Trek episodes. Um, the Way to Eden. I frickin love that episode. Right. I think it's outstanding and fun. And I just I love it for all the wrong reasons and a few right reasons. But the empath to me is just really depressing. Jim mentioned the music. It was that score in season three that they had started using a little bit new uh, orchestrations. And it's just this kind of like saccharine diabetes inducing violin music that's just like, oh, it's awful. And it's just, it's, you're just, there's nothing good to look at. Everybody seems super, super mannered. Um, as far as their performances go, um, DeForest Kelly has said this is his favorite episode. I guess it's because he had a lot of dialogue. I don't know, but it's just uh, it's it's just not for me, man. Um, I just don't get it. I don't enjoy it. I don't care for the uh, uh, the tone of it. To me, it's just really bleak and depressing and 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 boring it is a super tedious episode every scene feels like it's the one that came before if you will um uh, and what's interesting for me is uh there was a uh oh god see if i can remember what it was called i'm not sure if i can but there was an episode of the outer limits okay that was very similar uh, to this i uh it's escaping me what it was called um Oh God! Yeah, it's. I, I want to say experiment or uh, it's. It's vexing me, but I'll, I'll. It'll come to me in a minute. But it's almost the same episode. Okay, it is almost the same episode as far as like a, humans being abducted for some experiment in uh, morality, right? To kind of see what they're all about, right? And what's interesting is that episode was directed by John Ehrman, who's the same director who directed this particular episode. So um, pretty interesting, I think. Uh, Nightmare is the Outer Limits episode I was trying to remember. Yeah, Nightmare, which is a pretty decent episode uh, from back in the first season of Outer Limits back in 1963. But yeah, John Ehrman did both of these. And so I'm like thinking that like maybe he, you know, got a hold of the script from this fan 
right, who submitted it uh, back in the day, right, and said, oh, I kind of know what we can do with this, and it won't take a lot of effort because I've already done it before. And he kind of nightmarized it, right, is my guess. And they kind of like, you know, maybe did another draft of the script to kind of make it like Outer Limits, except it was really just, you know, during a period that was not the best of next gen doing what it, or not next gen, original series doing what it did well, right? That's season one and season two. And uh, this super rare that something good could sneak through season three. Um, but uh, but yeah, so I, to me, it's just depressing. Uh, it's bleak. Um, I don't find anything about it uh, enjoyable. It's it's an episode I would put on as punishment. Now, right? how so about not my thing. I would give it a, be, just because... And the children shall lead is so awful. I would give and the children <laughs> shall lead. To me, I would give it a two. Okay, uh, I would give it a two, probably a one if I was cranky, right? So it's a good thing I'm feeling generous. So I'll give this one a three. So actually, you know what? Because it's such an aberration, maybe I'll give it. <gasps> should no. I give it my first no. decimal? Whoa. No, that's out of character. Whoa. I'm gonna give it a two. Uh, gonna, you know what, I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm gonna give it a two. I'm gonna give this episode a two, and, and the children shall lead would be a one. But yeah, this is this is really depressing. Uh, it's bleak, and it's just it's. And I'm, I feel bad. I wish I was like the people who left the enthusiastic comments because clearly they liked it and got a lot out of it and thought it was very emotional and moving for them. I, I'm I'm sorry that I don't share that, but I in no mean and, way mean to denigrate their thoughts. Uh, I'm I'm thrilled when people like it. It's just not for me. Some people like uh, cottage cheese. If you feed me cottage cheese, I'll probably throw up. <laughs> All right, no cottage cheese for you. Yeah, and so that's I'm hungry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, uh, what are you going to do? One of our Facebook people was mentioning how it was banned in the UK, and that is true. That this episode was banned. It wasn't. It, it was. If I don't remember, like fifteen or twelve years later, when it finally aired um, in the UK because of the torture scene, they felt that yeah. it was too violent, and the, the torture huh. scene weren't allowed on television. Back then, yeah. so this episode it was that was episode. It was uh, Miri, Plato's stepchildren, and whom gods destroy were all banned in the UK because they they considered Star Trek guys a children's program. They really did, and that back in the day, that's how they saw it. And you know, super conservative forces in the UK, right? And so those were banned for a long time there because they were deemed too intense for minors. Oh dear. We can't let yeah. little Nigel watch that with that, you know, uh, naked green woman in whom gods destroy, right? Well, that'll get you banned, I'll tell you that. But, uh, but yeah, so <laughs> those four episodes, So and this is one of them. And this is one of them, yep. So, Charles, you want to jump in and go next? Or not, maybe. Paging Charles, paging Charles. Spock, are you there, Spock? Spock, I'm you, <laughs> on mute. We Have we lost Charles? You. I can't find He's the operating on Spock's brain button. Yeah. Well, why, well, then why don't we go to David? Why don't you jump in here, David? Okay. So I've been hearing a lot about how bad this episode is. I actually forgot to watch it before the show because I got distracted. But Good. <laughs> that's, Good. That's now, the, I, now I might not watch it. But <laughs> Because you had Paul hanging off of one nipple and Charles on the other. We know the truth. <laughs> Lordy. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I uh, from memory served, what I remember of this particular episode, uh, it was, no, there's nothing I have remembered. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, other than that, um, let me just say one word for you guys. 
Well, there you go. There. Oh my gosh, that was funny. That Let me just say really one was. word about this episode. I guess it really was telepathetic. So. There you go. Okay. So what would you then? What would you? What would you telepath? What would you score it then? Telepathetic. Um. Telepathetic. Oh, telep- telepathetically scoring this episode, I guess a three. Even though I haven't Agreed. seen it in a long, long, long time, so I'd probably give it more, but yeah, it's just a three for me. All right. Let's see. Let's see if uh if Paul I mean let's see if um Charles is is back with us again. Hopefully he uh he can hear us. Charles, you wanna go okay. next? Well can you hear me now? Yes. Okay. We hear I think I, I think there was a there was a bit of a hiccup and I think the mic got kicked out. Okay. I was looking at this, looking at season three, and I'm looking at like, okay, Tholian and Webb, who's a good episode. Let This Be Your Last Battlefield was a good episode from season three. But with Star Trek, almost being canceled in season two and getting one more season. They lost a few writers and I think the budget got cut. And I think this was a good example of things that happened. And the torture scenes and they just have this person strapped up and yet we don't see anything being happening to them. So we're, how are they getting tortured? Were they psychically being tortured and getting all these injuries? That didn't make any sense. By watching this episode, Charles, that's how they were being tortured. <laughs> that could be it. That may have may, made may how they got it, how they got it. Uh just the way they were doing things, it just, and this was yeah. in, in the right direction. Okay, you guys will get half a day outside, and that's it. And then we're going to be sticking you in this room and... Oh yeah, and oh, by the way, we got the the Enterprise. Yeah, they had a filming and they're going home. They don't even have to be on set for the rest of the week. So we actually got to see Scotty in charge of the Enterprise. But also didn't get to see much of Scotty. <clears throat> I think Aurora might have gotten a week off this with that episode. So I think I'm going to go right about with Jim and a four on this one. All right. A four from Charles. And you know what that means, Eric? You bring up the caboose. You heard what everybody else said. You heard all of our scores. Now it's it's your turn to speak. Yeah, uh, it's kind of funny because I thought for sure, Jim, that you were that you were honest in your kind of love of this episode because I know that there are several people like some of our fans and like what Paul was saying, some of our fans who love this episode. Um, and the thing, the first thing that hit me when I started rewatching this was um, 
that I was like, I bet Jim is going to say that Jim is prototypical Cybok because she like takes other people's pain. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of fun to see, I guess, like the genesis of that sort of idea in an episode. Um, uh, here's what I'll say. Uh, there are some things that I liked about this episode. I, I don't mind at all one bit the theatrical nature of the opening with the kind of like dark lighting and the spotlights and the real sparse set stuff just sort of scattered around. That doesn't in and of itself bother me one bit. I actually think that episodes can be really, really successful when they kind of take that approach. And so as a result, I think when I rewatched this episode, my brain automatically went into theater mode versus like watching a Star Trek television episode mode. And so I was a little bit more forgiving of some of the mannerisms, some of the way that some of the things were acted out some of the Shatnerisms that were even somehow more Shatnery than they would normally be. Um, you know, that, that didn't really mind me. And it actually, this episode, if, if I were to compare it to another piece of science fiction that um, I think took a similar, um, you know, approach occasionally, like the old Lost in Space show, you know, that, that thing absolutely felt theatrical to me at times and you could tell that those sets were on a sound stage and that sort of stuff and and the doctor was constantly overacting you know? so um I, I didn't mind that in and of itself i just didn't think the writing was that well and i it was that good and it's not that the concepts weren't good i actually thought some of the concepts were really cool um there are some things that i really like in this episode regarding like what they're trying to say about people and you know that sort of stuff, but I I don't think it was executed very well. However, that being said, I do think that this has probably the best line when the best, certainly top five lines or top ten lines maybe that I've heard in all of Star Trek. It's when Kirk says <laughs> he says the best defense is a strong offense, and I intend to start offending right now. <laughs> It's very kirky to me, um, and that made me laugh, and that kind of like kicked it up just a notch for me, and simply because of the of that line, um, I didn't mind that one bit. You know, you get a McCoy death scene, uh, so there's some emotion to that. Um, I don't know that it's that compelling, um, and you kind of, I guess, if there's one thing that's the most compelling to me about the episode, it would be that, um, you know, the big three are very much kind of supporting one another. And the moment of uh, McCoy's death is, although hand up and that sort of stuff, um, you know, it's meaningful. And you can tell that it hits people. Even Spock's, uh, Leonard Nimoy's performance in that moment is, you know, pretty decent. Um, but there's so much about the episode that I didn't get, like the whole Ben's thing, and they're only like 1.2 something meters underground. I don't know. I didn't, there's a lot of stuff in there that I didn't, from a like if you're just trying to track what's happening in the episode there are too many moments where you're sort of saying wait what wait what what's happening now um so you know i can't say i can't say it's the worst because clearly paul is correct and the children shall lead is the absolute worst episode of star trek of all time but thank you friend um, thank you. Thank this you. one <laughs> but this one is kind of in the bottom like 10% probably for me so if i were to 
be a little generous, which I'm feeling like I need to be a little generous because, you know, we've all kind of, um, you know, not found too much in this episode. I feel like generously I can give this one a two. But I do feel similar to Paul in that, you know, if this episode was really super meaningful to you, we are not here to poo-poo that. Um, I, I would love – I wish that we had had a fan call in and say, this episode is amazing because of X and actually argue it with us because I could probably be convinced, you know. <laughs> if, I, if I find the right person and I'm enough beers in, man, I could definitely be convinced that this is <laughs> a, decent, a decent episode. But, uh, but, yeah, that's what it is for me. I'll give it a two. Well, I got to say, I would rather watch this episode or Spock's Brain or and the Children Shall Lead over TNG's Shades of Grey. I, I no, way. no way. No way. First piece of dripping crap that ever got named Star Trek. It is a worthless, meaningless, <laughs> go nowhere, do nothing filler episode if ever there was a poster child for filler it's shades of gray could have been good could have been but they chose to go the cheap cheesy yeah yeah for me it's shades of gray absolute worst star trek episode ever made what about uh what about original series jim what's your most detested original series episode spock's brain Really? Mm. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, Fox Interesting. Brain, I think. Okay. Mm. Brain and Brain. But what is Brain? Brain, brain. brain. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, Charles, what? how did we, the Trexpert, match up with our Facebook fans as far as scoring of the episode? Well, according to the Trexperts, the fans gave it like a 5.4. The Trexperts gave it a three. Brutal. All right. Yeah, yeah, well, I was right. <laughs> yeah, sometimes, sometimes that happens. Sometimes you feel like a nut. Sometimes you don't. All right, guys. Well, that wraps up our, our highly intellectual yet entertaining and educational review of The Empath. And now it's time for... That was not a Klingon song. All right, guys. We always start off our Star Trek birthdays by remembering those members of our Star Trek family who, sadly enough, are no longer with us. And for that, we turn to Eric. Yeah, Jim, uh, this week our first uh, remembrance goes out to actress Patricia Smith uh, LaSalle. That's what she was born, eventually became Patricia Harlan Smith. Uh, she's the actress who played the role of an old-looking Dr. Kingsley uh, in the uh, episode Unnatural Selection uh, from TOS. If you don't remember who Dr. Kingsley is, she's the lady in her mid-30s who's being afflicted with like that accelerated aging problem. She deteriorates fast, and so Patricia Harlan Smith played one iteration of that character, much in the same way that uh, we get several Spocks in Star Trek Three, She had uh, TV guest appearances in uh, several shows back in the day and was a regular performer on the Debbie Reynolds show and the Bob Newhart show. Uh, so not just uh, television, but sort of stagey television 
personality. In 1974, she made an uncredited appearance in the unsold pilot for the proposed series, Planet Earth, which we have talked about quite a bit, which would have also, of course, starred people like Major Barrett and Diana Moldar, who, which would have been awesome. Um, she also had a role in the epic 1979 miniseries Roots, The Next Generation. So uh, Patricia Harlan Smith would have had a birthday this week. Happy birthday to her. Happy birthday as well to Marge Doucet. She was the Emmy-nominated actress who played Kara in the original series third season episode, Spock's Brain, which we were just talking about. According to an audio interview on her official website, she did not watch her Star Trek episode until a fan sent her a VHS tape in the 1990s, <laughs> which I think is cool. So she didn't see it until 30 years later. She made her film debut in 1967, playing a small role alongside a little guy named Elvis Presley in the film Clambake. And uh, from the 1980s on, Marge Doucet was pretty much known for her soap operas. Uh, 83 to 87, Constance Towers on Capitol, 87 to 91, Pamela Cable on Santa Barbara, we're talking Days of Our Lives, Guiding Light, All My Children. She was all over the place. So Marge Doucet, fun contribution to Spock's brain and uh, sort of the queen of soap operas as far as I'm concerned uh, when it comes to crossovers with Star Trek. So happy birthday, Marge. Happy birthday as well to Celia Lovsky. She was the actress from Vienna, Austria, who played Tapau in the original series, second season episode, A Muck Time, one of the best one, of course, of only 14 guest stars born in the 19th century uh, to appear in any Star Trek episode or film. She studied at the Royal Academy and went on to appear in stage plays in Austria and Germany until meeting Hungarian actor Peter Lorre, a guy you may have heard of, uh, whom she later married. Although the couple divorced in 1945, they were devoted friends their entire life, which I think is pretty cool. She played the mother of Lon Chaney, who herself was deaf-mute in The Man of a Thousand Faces, one of her just, just amazing performances, where she used American Sign Language. She also appeared in the science fiction movie Soylent Green. And proving unable to perform the Vulcan salute naturally for a month time, she actually manipulated the fingers of her left hand into the correct position before raising it into range of the camera. So when you rewatch a month time, you'll notice that. Celia Lovsky, we lost her all the way back in 1979. She was born in 1897, lived to be 82 years old. Happy birthday. And last but certainly not least, we're saying happy birthday this week to actor Gary Lockwood, who lived to be 86 years old, and we unfortunately just lost uh, less than a month ago, uh, January 18th, 2024, we lost Gary Lockwood, the actor who played Gary Mitchell in the original series, first season episode where no one, where no man has gone before. Uh, but you, if, whether you've seen that episode or not, uh, I, I hope as a science fiction fan, maybe listening to this podcast, you have seen him in certainly his most seminal role as far as I'm concerned. Um, he's absolutely best known for his role as Dr. Frank Poole in the 1968 science fiction film 2001, A Space Odyssey, uh, just one of the absolute best movies of all time. And his performance in that is uh, a real treasure, something to be uh, something to be sort of looked up to by other actors, I think. Despite his one-time guest appearance on the Trek franchise, Lockwood participated in the 1997 documentary Trekkies, which chronicles the impact of Star Trek on the U.S. culture. And if you haven't seen that documentary, we also highly recommend that. 
From 1963 through 64, Lockwood was the star of the television series The Lieutenant, which we all know because, of course, it's connected to Mr. Shatner himself. Uh, and other than that, Gary Lockwood mostly did a lot of television guest appearances in the 60s and 70s. So uh, Frank Poole is how I will always remember this actor. Uh, just lost last month. Gary Lockwood, we love you and miss you. Happy birthday to you. And I'm going to pass this flaming birthday candle back over to Charles. Thank you, Eric. Oh, can you still hear me? We can hear you. Okay, I'm getting a lot of freezing on my end for some reason. We can hear you. Okay, let's do a happy happy birthday to Chol Wepper, actress who played Gabby in Star Trek Picard, second season episode, Assimilation and Watcher. Happy birthday to Andrea Drum, former actress and model who played Yeoman Smith in Star Trek's original series, second pilot, Where No Man Has Gone Before. Happy birthday to David Marshall, who portrayed Magnus Henson in Star Trek Voyager's fourth season episode, Scorpion Part Two, and The Raven. Happy birthday to Tucker Small, played Admiral Bullock in the flesh. He is best known in Star Trek for his reoccurring portrayal of the Zindi Primate Counselor in the third season episode of Stark Enterprise. Of course, Eric, we got to throw you that question. Good or bad, Admiral? Huh. That's a good one. Unless we is, lost is Eric. Eric. I guess we might have lost Eric. Okay. All right. Well, moving on. And a happy birthday to Jerry O'Connell, American actress who voices Jack Ransom in Star Trek Lower Decks. Paul, who's on your list? Thank oh, you, Charles. Oh, wait. wait a second, Charles. We got to mention, if we're going to talk about Jerry O'Connell, you, you've got to mention his appearance with Will Wheaton in that classic teenage movie, Stand By Me, right? And ah, you can't right. forget, he was in four seasons of Sliders, a classic sci-fi show that ran on television in the mid-90s. And he's married, right. married to the number one on Strange New Worlds. So we got two number ones living in the same house. So, okay, yeah. now we can pass it to Paul. And I Thanks, like Charles. Choice. I like oh gosh, you know, uh, in in terms of my list, you mean? Yes. Yeah. Go. Some good stuff there. But we're good now. Let's start off with uh, a. Let's just be frank. Um, one of the the legends, uh, living legends of yeah. um, Star Trek, I I think, and a, and a, a wonderful human being who's just contributed so much good. Uh, to life, uh, the great LeVar Burton, who we, of course, are honoring for playing uh, Jordy LaForge on uh, Star Trek The Next Generation throughout the show's entire seven-year run, and then at least four uh, next-gen Star Trek films, uh, Voyager's episode Timeless, which uh, Mr. Burton also directed, 
And then he's appeared recently, of course, in Star Trek Picard. Um, but this is a man who's just beloved by pretty much everyone who's ever met him. Um, LeVar Burton has talked openly about the number of people that he – it's kind of like folks who play particular things like uh, like uh, Gates McFadden, same kind of deal, right? But the number of people that have come up to LeVar Burton and said, you know, I'm an engineer. And do you know why? <laughs> it's because of you. Yeah. Right. Because it's like he, he just embodied that sense of tenacity and creativity and troubleshooting and and love of technology in a positive way that just really, uh, you know, changed a lot of people's lives. He's just a tremendous role model, um, a, a force for dignity and uh, enlightenment in our time. Uh, if LeVar Burton ever ran for president, I would vote for him quite happily because I think he's an outstanding human being. And uh, he's had many, many other things in his career in addition to Star Trek, of course. Um, let's not forget going way back to 77, same year Star Wars came out, um, when he played the, the lead role of Kunta Kinte in Roots on that miniseries. And that's where he, I don't know if that was his very first role, but it was certainly the role that a lot of people um, uh, think of him for, for having done. But uh, just a, a wonderful man and a, a tremendous actor. I mean, he really, really, really is. I mean, hide behind that visor for all those years. I mean, it's really <laughs> easy to get lost. And uh, LeVar Burton never did. I think he was always just a, a indelible presence. And I just one of the things I like most about Next Gen, I just you know have to belabor it a bit, I love the continuing ongoing friendship between uh, Jordy and Data. Mm-hmm. It's great. You don't always just see, you know, you, you got to see a little bit of that on uh, Deep Space Nine eventually, right? With other characters, right? Like between uh, Bashir and uh, and uh, Chief O'Brien. Thank you, Chief O'Brien. Sorry, it's the Novocaine wearing off. Yep. Uh, yep. But uh, but I just love the fact that like, okay, yeah, these yeah. guys are friends, and you get to see that, and it's cool. And the, the fact that friendship is something that's just part of their character is characterization is, is just great. So sorry. Long-winded talk, but big yeah. LeVar Burton fan. I think he's great. Oh. So happy birthday, LaForge. Paul, can I jump in? Please do, say, brother. I also want to sit there and recognize him for his work with Reading Rainbow. Oh, God, absolutely. Look at how many kids he got reading. The love of reading by the number of books he just spotlighted in that show. Yeah, yep. he's great. Mentioned yep. a, a lot of times, too, as a potential host for Jeopardy that people would love yes. to see because he's he's an intellectual guy and he represents decency and uh, and, and being smart. So I think he's a great, yeah. great choice. So, yeah, reading Rainbow for sure. Let's switch gears to another actor who I think is very, very cool. Um, opinions vary on the 2009 J.J. Abrams film, Star Trek, but uh, I happen to think it's great. And a really cool actor uh, is celebrating a birthday who was in that picture, uh, Farhan Tahir. I don't know if everyone knows Farhan uh, Tahir, uh, but he's a very cool dude, right? He comes from, uh, he's born in Los Angeles, but he comes from a Pakistani family, and he's done, the first thing I ever saw him in was in Iron Man, uh, basically the first movie of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and uh, he went from that uh, right into Star Trek. And if you're like, who is this guy in Star Trek movie? What are you talking about? Well, in the very beginning of the film, he's the captain of the Kelvin, okay, who basically starts the whole plot in motion during the opening scenes of the movie. Um, I've never – sorry, uh, Patrick Stewart, but I've never seen anyone make Bald look cooler. Yeah, it's so true. Than, 
Ferran Tahir. And Ferran Tahir looks like he could take your refrigerator and bench press it for an hour and probably not even break a sweat. I mean, the dude is just ripped. He's just cool looking, right? He's cool. I don't know why he doesn't get bigger roles in like Bond pictures or things like that, but he's just a badass and really, really cool. So uh, Captain uh, Rabao. Uh, if we will, uh, Ferran here, we salute you, sir, and, uh, and you're an awesome part of the Star Trek universe. Happy birthday also to Peter Marco, uh, the actor who I think played probably the, one of the most indelible red shirts ever, <laughs> Lieutenant Gaetano, in the original series, first season episode, The Galileo 7. <laughs> scared the living crap out of me as a young person. I don't mind admitting. Uh, but yeah, Gaetano, uh, very cool, and uh, really was not afraid to look terrified. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's one of the reasons that movie, that episode is so scary because he looks absolutely ready to just like, you know, wet his pants. He's terrified. And really his face cool, is really amazing. Nice. Yeah. yeah. It's really awesome. You know, so it's just like a uh, really cool and just a great ensemble actor, a terrific dude. So happy birthday, sir. Happy birthday also to actress, Rachel Drotch who voiced uh, Dolorex in the Lower Decks fourth season episode, episode, this is a hard one, Empathological Fallacies. <laughs> so there you go. Rachel Drach, uh, do some more work. Get back on the show. We would love to have you on more Lower Decks and other parts of the Star Trek universe. Um, we thought you were great. So happy birthday to you. Happy birthday also to George Beimer, actor from Avoca, Iowa, who played uh, Lee Nalas in the Deep Space Nine second season episodes. There's a few of them. The Homecoming, The Circle, and The Siege that we have. I'll just say that uh, from a gamer's standpoint, Lee Nalas is one of my favorite cards in Star Trek Attack Wing because he has a really good power. And if you don't know what it is, that's okay. Go look it up if you care. Don't if you don't. But super cool card. Anything more about that character, man, that you want to highlight? Because he had a little bit of an arc, right? Uh, he did have a little bit of an arc uh, in Deep Space Nine. Uh, anything I want to highlight about him? I don't know. I, ca I like that um, he's one of the good guys. You know, I mean, the if, if there's one of my favorite things about Deep Space Nine is just the Bajorans. And yeah. aside from aside from Kai Wen, who obviously is one of the best villains of all time and also Bajoran, <laughs> most of the Bajorans are portrayed as really like um you know, uh, noble people who are fighting for causes that they believe in. And Neil Lee Nallis is like a war hero and somebody that um, people look up to. Yeah, uh, he, he's like he a revered member of the resistance, right? Yeah, he, yeah, yeah. he sort of comes back and everybody thinks he's dead. And then he kind of comes back and he sort of, you know, becomes a, a figurehead again. And yeah, so he great cool portrayal. Role. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. Awesome, man. Thank you. Thank you. Happy birthday to you. Uh, George Beimer, and uh, it would, uh, you will find yourself among many Deep Space Nine fans on this show. Uh, love that. And then lastly for me, I'd like to send a salute and a happy birthday wherever you are, sir, to the lovely and wonderful Paul Dooley. Paul Dooley is amazing. Now, we are talking about his role here for playing Enabron Tain mm -hmm. in four episodes of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, but uh, Paul Dooley is a wonderful actor. He's an Emmy Award nominated actor. And uh, I don't know if everybody is familiar with the, the, the great movie Breaking Away or not. Um, and he 
uh, cycling enthusiasts uh, out there yeah. probably know Breaking Away. Uh, but he played the dad on that show. Um, uh, Paul Dooley often gets cast as like uh, lovable you know, repairmen or fathers, right? He was uh, in 16 Candles. He was in Hairspray. And uh, he played Wimpy in the Popeye movie back in the day. <laughs> For Robert Altman, so he's right. He was in a bunch of Altman films, if I remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's all over the place, but uh, just one of those great journeyman character actors, right? When you see a picture of him, you recognize him, right? You may not necessarily right away recognize what you remember him from, but uh, but you know you you will definitely recognize him, and he's a funny dude, and uh, can also bring. Uh, great pathos uh, and uh, and heart to his roles. Uh, a, a lovely uh, a lovely actor um, who's just done a ton of stuff. Does voiceover work for Pixar's and the Cars movies as like Sarge. Uh, really great dude. So happy birthday to you, uh, Mr. Dooley. We salute you here on uh, Trek Talking and your wonderful embodiment of Inabrintane. So that's all I've got for my birthday cavalcade. I think it's time to pass this. Uh, flaming uh, dollop of frosting back over to Uncle Jim and smear it on his batlet. <laughs> the frosting's on yeah, fire! <laughs> I don't have any Quinnah, unfortunately, this week. What? And I only, Somebody here is from New York, though, I'm Is sure. the world coming to an end? How can this be? <laughs> I, I know, I know. I only have four, but they're four doozies. So, uh, first off, I know that we have some Voyager fans amongst us, Whoop. and so we want to say Happy birthday to Martha Hackett, the actress from Needham, Massachusetts, best known for her role as Stetska on 13 episodes of Star Trek Voyager, the backstabbing ex-Cardassian girlfriend of Chakotay. You know, and I think if I'm correct, I'm not, uh, check me on this. Somebody leave a comment on the Facebook page if I am incorrect, but I believe that she's one of the only characters to play three different races in like major parts of her role. You know what I mean? Like she was absolutely a Starfleet officer and she was absolutely a Bajoran and she was absolutely a Cardassian. I just, I love that about her. And didn't she have Chakotay's love child? She also had Chakotay's love child. Oh, wow. <laughs> true. Yeah. Yeah. Wasn't she also part Bajoran, part Cardassian? Uh, the alien race? I kept thinking she was a uh, half. Pretty. No, she's not. She's not like uh, um, what's her name, J- J- uh, Ducat's daughter. But um, no, she just like she. There are many change. It check out her arc because she does have kind of a cool arc. She's a good villain who does not first appear as a villain and then is kind of revealed throughout the series. And I I, I like Seska's kind of. Because she's like awesome. genetically altered, right? To yes. appear like yes, a Bajoran. Exactly. Oh, that's that's not a okay. Yeah, 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 but yeah, she's yeah. a but she's a she's kind of like the Cardassians version of uh, what we were talking about last week. <laughs> the you know the the, the section thirty one, right? She's oh yes. She's yeah, like she's an intelligence an infiltrating. Yeah. Right? yeah, she's an infiltrator, right? And, the, uh, I don't know if she's Obsidian Order or not, but she's part of definitely an, an intelligence agency. Yeah. yeah, yeah, she's been you know deep cover type deal, right? So, so pretty cool. And I'm also yes, there is an Ensign Seska action figure out there. Ooh, so um, there that is a, that is available for Seska fans. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah, back when they were just cranking out everybody, right? Yeah. <laughs> 
when they would hmm. not hold back, right? They were like, oh, yeah, we'll make an action figure of you as opposed to Is it Bajoran no. Seska or? It is not. It is uh, the. It's Cardassian oh, it? Seska. I think, you know, actually, I'm re- I have to actually correct myself because I'm checking. There are actually, are you ready for this? There are no two. Way. There yes. are two. She is available in her Ensign Seska as an agent, guys, right? But she's also available. They reissued another one where she's in her Cardassian look as well hmm. later on. So she's actually gotten the treatment twice, which is pretty badass. So that's pretty cool. Uh, I think that's, a, that's good stuff. Uh, and we all love Voyager on this show, though. My God. Sorry, Jim. We got excited about Ensign Seska. <laughs> we did. <laughs> Martha well, Hackett, we, we love got you. more. Yeah, because I'd rather I'd rather spend an hour talking about Martha Hackett than the empath, right? Because you know, <laughs> she kicks ass, man. She She's does. an underrated Maybe character. Maybe we could do a special view. episode of her. Yeah, let's get her on the show. I bet she'd be like, "Yeah, I'd like to talk about that." Let's get get her on here, man. She's cool. Uh, I'll have to track her down. Uh, yeah. the birthday on our list. I'm a quarter of the way through my birthdays. We <laughs> want to say happy birthday to Kelsey Grammer, Emmy and Golden Globe winning actor who appeared in the role of Captain Morgan Bateson in the Star Trek The Next Generation 50s episode, Cause and Effect. Uh, One of those that I just can't stand watching. It just, it's so repetitive. It's just... It just seems repetitive. It You're just, not serious. Gee, Come on, that's a brilliant episode. A <laughs> it just seems like repetitive. It, it just seems like it's well, repetitive. So okay, it's, and redundantly but, repetitive at that. But let's talk about. <laughs> but let's talk about the fact that Kelsey Grammer is not the only guy from back in the day that like appeared in both Cheers and Star Trek. Because um, if I remember correctly, I believe Kate Mulgrew appeared in Cheers. I believe Patrick Stewart appeared in Cheers. Um, of course, we have uh, Lilith. Yes. Yes, exactly. Uh, so I think they're BB like BB Newworth. Let's I, not forget her. There's the guy. I think it's like the guy that played Morn or something was in Cheers too. <laughs> yeah. So there's a whole lot of crossover between Cheers and Star Trek, which I think is pretty cool. That is that is cool. I, I put a meme up about that. Oh, okay, um, cool. Oh, I should check that out. <laughs> you probably already said. <laughs> playing their Star Trek characters and you had you had a whole bridge crew basically. <laughs> oh yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. cool. And uh moving on, we have another awesome, awesome birthday. She's she's new to our Star Trek family, but we love her nonetheless. We want to say a very, very happy birthday and hailing frequencies are open to Celia Rose Gooding, the American actress and singer who sings incredibly well on Strange New World, Bohemian Rhapsody, I might add. She plays mm-hmm. Neona O'Hara on Star Trek Strange New World. And boy, can she belt out a song. Oh, my God. I mean, she's, she's like, a, to me, she's like a ray of sunshine on that show. Literally every time Celia Rose Gooding comes on uh, camera, I just, I just, like, I feel a little bit better about the situation that they're in. Yeah, she they they really they really uh, wrote that character uh, mm-hmm. on Strange World very intelligently, and I think they gave Ahura what she deserved. You know, I, I it's just I love the way they portray her on Strange New World, 
And Steely Rose Gooding is really, really deserving of carrying the torch that uh, that Michelle Nichols started. So happy birthday, Steely Rose Gooding. And we're down to my very, very last birthday. And, oh, uh, yeah. It's, you know, <laughs> I, I, I just, ah, wow, I don't know what to say. Uh, Do justice, man. Do justice. Yeah, man, this is this is a tough one because, yeah, she's so awesome. Everybody knows her. Everybody loves her. I think that, you know, over the last, was it, 20-some-odd years, she uh, she came out of the closet, per se. She hooked up with Rafi, and uh, she's phenomenal. I don't know what else I can say about her. We are the Borg. Lower your shields and surrender your ships. We will add your biological and technological distinctiveness to our own. Your culture will adapt to service us. Resistance is futile. No, no, no. Yeah, she, she, uh, I think this is, she's the quintessential Borg. I know we have Locutus <laughs> and we have the Borg Queen, but I, I think if it wasn't for her, the Borg wouldn't be half of what they are today because she brought the Borg to life. She made them more dimensional than just resistance is futile. And I think that's why her character captivated so many people. And in my opinion, saved Star Trek Voyager just by adding her because yeah. she's so awesome. The whole Borg arc with the Borg children that they found on the sphere and each had her relationship with the doctor. Just some great, 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 great stuff that Jerry Ryan brought to Star Trek. Uh, She's best known for portraying Seven of Nine, of course, on Voyager um, from the fourth season on. She appeared in Scorpion Part Two is where she started. Um, She later reprised her role on Star Trek Picard. Uh, she won just recently a Saturn Award for her appearance on Star Trek Book Part. Strangely enough, it's her second Saturn Award because she won the award for playing Seven of Nine on Star Trek Voyager as well. So she hmm. won it twice for playing the same character. And, you know, I, I can't say enough about Jerry Ryan. You know, people give her a lot of flack uh, because I think Rick Berman wanted some sex pistol for teenage boys to drool over. And he says, we're going to take a blonde and we're going to wrap her in skin tight clothes and we're going to throw her on the screen. And that's exactly what he did. But in doing that, I think they created one of the most multi-faceted characters that we've ever seen on Star Trek. And I think she transcended more than the sexy eye candy. I'm not going to admit, to deny the fact that yes, she's a very, very striking attractive woman that is absolutely true but there is so much more to that character than just a bodysuit and yeah. i just she's by far one of my favorite i think her and the doctor would have been my two favorite characters on voyager and you know jim you make I, a great point brother you do because i think the most timeless and indelible characters on all star trek are the ones who are i think have a common theme right uh spock data seven of nine, right? There are characters who are grappling with duality, right? Where they are, they're like two different people and they're trying to reconcile those different halves of themselves, right? And she did such a remarkable job of that. I'm, I watched Scorpion and some of those early seven of nine episodes really recently. And it's just amazing, man, because it's like, it's all about trying to find your humanity again, you know, and rebuild who you are. And, uh, 
it's really she did a remarkable job and she's still playing that uh and working subtleties with the character on her work on picard and uh she's just really really great so i mean uh, definitely uh you know as you kind of you know, referred to not just a pretty face. I mean, she is just a, a tremendous actor. Really brings it uh, when the scene uh, is got good content. She really shows up, and uh, and she's always gone working those two angles of somebody who's trying to like reconcile the uh, both parts of their personality, which I think is something that a lot of us can uh, relate to. So uh, I think a lot, a lot of Seven of Nine fans, and and uh, she's great with the fans too. A really good, uh, a really you know. Uh, open person, very uh, delights in uh, meeting people. So, yeah, she's great, brother. And she walked the picket lines and fought hard for the contract. She was there every day. The rights of the actors during the strike, which I commend her for as being the the president of my local union chapter. I can relate to that. Um, It's not easy, but, you know, you do it. And I think in Picard season one, when she briefly became the board queen with some of the best stuff I've seen from her, you know, uh, and her relationship with Rafi, I think is a highlight for me in, in Star Trek Picard season two. And then of course, when she becomes the captain of the enterprise G at the end of Picard, I mean, she's a multifaceted actor. She knows that character. She knows how to play that character and she does a great job. So happy birthday to Jerry Ryan. And that wraps up our birthdays, and now it's time for some Priority One message from Starfleet coming in on Secured Channel. Incoming transmission. Enter authorization code. Command codes verified. Define parameters of program. Level 9 authorization required. Specify parameters. Transfer of data is complete. How in the hell did I mess up the, the the script so bad? What did I do? Was I on drugs or something? Oh no, God, you yes. just you just skipped ahead, Jim. It was okay. What, it was okay. What did I, the world doesn't need to know. What happened here? All right. <laughs> <laughs> wow. All right, Charles. So you're you you get to start our news. All right. Well, I'm hoping this is the book I'm looking for. Star Trek Plausible Truth book will bridge the gap between the next generation and Deep Space Nine. The new Star Trek novel coming from the franchise veteran novelist Dayton Ward tells Star Trek Next Generation Plausible Truth. The story is set in the year 2369. The same year that the story of 9 begins with Captain John Luke Picard hands her control space station over to Captain Sisko. A thrilling Star Trek Next Generation and Space Nine adventure from the New York best best selling author Dayton Ward. Twenty three sixty nine, shortly after Starfleet thwarts a Cardassian attack on a Federation star system. The Cardassian government orders an end to its 50-year occupation of the planet Bajor. As a result, a newly installed Bajoran government requests immediate assistance from the Federation to mandate how to withdraw will proceed and what compense, if any. Bajorans are owned owed from their brutal oppressors. 
Captain Jean-Luc Picard is ordered by Starfleet Command to oversee these tense negotiations on Terok Nor, <clears throat> the massive Cardassian space station still orbiting Bajor, even as he still deals with his own recent trauma as being a prisoner and held by a Cardassian interrogator. As these critical peace talks get underway, Ensign Rolaren receives a call for help from a friend through a long-dead, exposing an insidious secret from inside the Cardassian space. Now Bacard and crew of the Starship Enterprise must act to prevent an interstellar incident from re- reigniting deadly hostilities between the Federation and Cardassians and shattering any hopes of justice for the Bajoran people. Simon Schuster will publish Star Trek Next Generation Pliable Truth through Pocket Books on May 23rd, 2024. You will be able to get the book or the audio book on that day. I have I'm to tell you. There's a, yeah, go ahead. I'm wow. hoping there's a with why that happened in the first place. Why did Cardassian try taking over Bayshore? Well, um, they talk about that at the, actually at the beginning of Deep Space Nine. They talk about uh, that it mainly is for the resources of the planet. Right. Um, and they name a couple. But, but I am so excited about this book, you guys. I mean, we've read – I've read every single well, – and I think Charles has definitely read. Maybe Jim has also read every single Star Trek book that's come out in the last, like, I don't know, five to ten years. And this one is the one that excites me the most. Uh, I love the setup for Deep Space Nine. I love the whole idea of this occupation and this oppressed people. And this really sounds like it's going to fill in that little gap right there that we don't necessarily have um, a lot of information about. The only other example that I can think of is uh, actually the the Andrew Robinson book, uh, A Stitch in Time covers a little bit of this same time period and actually Garrick's involvement in sort of the, um, you know, the mm-hmm. reinvigoration of the Cardassian uh, people, so to speak. So I'm, I'm all about this book. I am super, and it's got Rolaren. Are you kidding me? Yeah, I'm in. And, and the thing that makes this book special and unique is that this is the first, this is the first book that's not based on a current running series that's on Paramount Plus. Every book has been Strange New World, has been Discovery, it's true. has been yeah. Picard. Because I think there have been a books, couple. Well, they ended, they wrapped up the entire uh, classic Star Trek series uh, with this, I think it was called Vanguard or something. I don't, I didn't read them, but. No. They wrapped up all those those stories and said, "Okay, we're done with this. Move on." Well, now, now they're going back, and I think we're back know, to the pocketbook era, so to speak. Yeah, that's that's well, significant. I think, Jim, actually, I think there's been one or two other books out there, but we've had more of the books than the novels. We, yeah, absolutely. The style of the novels. Yeah, and Dayton Ward, uh, I'm sure it'll be a good book. Of course. Sure. I mean, that, that, that guy yes. could churn out, like, fiction like nobody's <laughs> – he's just – he's amazing, and every story is compelling. So crazy. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, Charles, oh, no, 
Eric, you have our next story. How did this happen? I do. Uh, yeah, somehow I, Jim I, managed I to. He was like clearly yeah. Jim was not feeling like himself when he put this together because guess what, guys? I'm the one who gets to talk about Star Trek Five today. That's right. Figure that <laughs> Star one Trek. Out. Star Trek Five says Strange New Worlds can't do two things with Spock's brother. Cybok. Hmm, very interesting. Star Trek Strange yep. New Worlds has teased the official return of Cybok, the Vulcan half-brother of Spark, Spock, played by Ethan Peck. But Cybok's role in Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, means two things can't happen. Star Trek Strange New Worlds Season 1, Episode 7, The Serene Squall, reveals that Cybok is currently being housed at a Vulcan rehabilitation facility under the assumed name of Zavarius. Cybok is only briefly glimpsed in the Serene Squall, and he has not made another appearance in Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, where, uh, which established that Cybok and Spock shared a father in Ambassador Sarek. But Cybok rejects logic and his father's teachings. Based on the events of Star Trek V, Spock cannot catch up to his half-brother if Cybok returns in Strange New Worlds, right? We can't, like, have a crossover. And James T. Kirk cannot be present in any of Cybok's episodes. Okay. In Star Trek V, Cybok taunts Spock by saying, Spock, it's me. It's Cybok. After all these years, you finally caught up with me. Because of this line of dialogue, Spock cannot apprehend Cybok in Strange New Worlds. Okay, we got it. Cybok's line implies that Spock has been searching for his half-brother for quite some time, but Cybok evaded him. In The Final Frontier, Spock says he hasn't seen Cybok in a very long time, but this doesn't preclude the two from meeting in Strange New Worlds, which is set about 25 years before Star Trek V. Despite being Spock's best friend, Captain James T. Kirk has no knowledge of Cybok prior to the events of Star Trek V. When Spock reveals that Cybok is his half-brother, Kirk is shocked and does not believe him at first. Kirk has no idea that Spock had a brother, and Strange New Worlds cannot do anything to change that. Cybok apparently disagree, never... disagree, disagree, disagree. <laughs> okay, let's talk about it in a minute here. Uh, Cybok apparently never achieves rehabilitation, reinforcing the idea that he escapes from Ankeshtan Katil at some point. Star Trek Strange the World <laughs> should definitely bring back the character of Cybok, but they have to be careful how it's done. Uh, Paul, I want to hear your take on, uh, on, on this here. Well, I'll just give an example, right? Yeah. I think it would be cool if they do it, but it's just like, you know, I think that, uh, I think modern uh, Star Trek writers have shown that they uh, try to work with canon, but are not slaves to canon. Yes. All right. I mean, it's just like when, and especially if it's something where, you know, perhaps uh, the writing could have been tighter in places and it's less convenient. You make something up and it's easy to do. Okay. The whole idea that, okay, Kirk has no idea that Spock had a brother, right? And it says Stranger Worlds cannot do anything to change that. That is the most short-sighted thing I've ever seen. Of course they can. There's a million different things you could do. I mean, the first thing that I could think of is just like, you know, where, I mean, yet another made-up Vulcan technique where someone can, like, you know, give someone, uh, you know, amnesia about a certain thing. Forget. Forget. You know, basically, like, you know. 
Yeah, it's like you know, and, and I think like the, the the reverse of the whole thing. Remember that you know Nimoy does right. Oh, yeah. It's just like it's basically he just says forget. He just they can meet, and then he can just basically you know yeah, suppress that for him. So that's just one well, thing I'm making up in this oh, space of like ten seconds that you could do. And the same thing they can come up with other things to prevent the, to deal with the whole. Oh, you finally caught up with me, right? He could be saying it like ironically in Star Trek Five because you know they said I'll catch up with you again. There's a, there's a lot. Right. Ways around this, and they do not have to be in any way married to inconvenient things uh, that are sitting there in you know in five. They can get around that and still you know make it work. But there's always it's it's don't be short sighted. Whoever wrote this thing is super yeah. This article was kind of weird. Yeah, I I, I agree. Well, I think I this article was pretty I pretty like it. It didn't. Okay, you, jump in. Yeah. But I a totally good writer will figure out a way to make it so that they've got a really cool story and that serves. But you got to serve what you're working with now, and sometimes you got to tweak Canon a little bit, and that's just the price you pay. So you know, it's, right. there you go. I I don't know. I didn't give myself this story. I was must have really been out there. I don't know. Seeing how Star Trek Five is the best movie ever made, and I love that movie and watch it endlessly. I got to say, first of all. In Strange New Worlds, he's not going by the name of Cybok. Even if Kirk meets him, what what does that mean? He's meeting. He's not meeting. Cybok. I met Zavarius. Well, he we know it's Cybok, but but we've yet, you know, Kirk wouldn't necessarily know that that is Cybok. And even if he did, he wouldn't know that Cybok is, is Spock's brother. So that wouldn't change yeah. anything. Even if he came up to him and said. Hi, Captain Kirk. I'm Cybok. That still wouldn't change anything because he doesn't know that Cybok is Spock's brother. That name would be meaningless to him. But he's not mm-hmm. going by the name at this point in time. So it wouldn't matter. It would have no bearing on anything. And you know, it wouldn't matter. They could they could hang out and play and, and play Domjot together. It wouldn't wouldn't matter because <laughs> he, he doesn't know at, at this point in the timeline. He does it now. So it doesn't matter. It wouldn't affect anything. Yeah, we get you know? it. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah. So who cares? <laughs> you know, as far as Spock beating him, you know, who cares about that either? You know, Spock doesn't talk about Cybok. So, so like I guess what we've... So I guess... Hey, here's my half-brother Cybok. You'll meet him 25 years from now. No, that, that conversation... It's never going to happen. So, I, you know, I I just want to see me some Cybok guys. You know? <laughs> yeah, I think what we've determined is that um, we're all into seeing some more Cybok and that this article was pretty much useless. When we did see him in season three, I was disappointed. Um, but I hope we see him in season four. Please, season, please, please, please. Season Season two. three, season four. Five, got season two and season three, right? We've only had two seasons, right? Two seasons. Yeah, three. season three they're working on. Yeah. All right. So, so Paul, you you you've got our next uh, spotlight here. <laughs> that was, this was all very funny. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to go over to another uh, spoke on the wheel of the franchise here. We're going to talk a little bit about Star Trek Enterprise, and we're going to have. Uh, the show's late showrunner, Manny Cotto's uh, perspective here. Uh, a fundamental problem 
uh, with the concept of Star Trek Enterprise was identified by the show's uh, late showrunner, Manny Cotto, who said that Enterprise had a big problem from the Star Trek prequels start. Uh, Enterprise premiered on the UPN, uh, United Paramount Network, uh, back in 2001, back when people still had cable. And it was the fourth Star Trek series produced by Rick Berman. And although it was a prequel set in the 22nd century, it retconned the NX-01 Enterprise, led by Captain Jonathan Archer as the first Starship Enterprise. The series closely followed the proven formula of Berman's successful Star Trek franchise. Uh, This ended up being a mistake, says Manny Cotto, who took over the role of showrunner in Enterprise's fourth and final season. The NX-01 Enterprise was Starfleet's first Warp 5 capable ship, uh, capable of deep space exploration, and soon became clear that the human race was already in space long before the Enterprise launched. How did Manny Cotto give this interview if he was dead? I don't that's what know. That's, that's what I, I don't know. know. It's like, you know, this is something really, 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 really old, apparently, because I don't know. Maybe they were going through his, uh, his, his, his uh, you know, his, uh, his papers or whatever you're, you're Things that you leave behind. Uh, the NX-01 Enterprise was Starfleet's first Warp 5 capable sh- ship capable of deep space exploration, but it soon became clear that the human race was already in space long before the Enterprise launched. This was a mistake, as Manny Cotto explains in his quote below. If you're going to do that show, then it has to be the only human ship out there, alone, you know? So when the series is starting, you're watching, and suddenly Anthony Montgomery is talking about being a boomer in a ship that is transporting cargo. What? Wait a minute, we're already out there? So what's the Enterprise? It's just kind of going further out. It was vague, and it lessened the whole drama of it. Bannon's original, uh, Brannon's original idea was right. They should have been the first and the only, and all of their own. The drama would have been heightened tremendously, because we have no one to depend on. By the way, I would have included the Vulcans with that as well. I think the Vulcans' backup really kind of undercut the whole thing. Ugh. Okay, dude. God damn it. Sorry, this article pisses me off so much. I thought I would, yeah. Executive producer Brandon Braga, who co-created Star Trek Enterprise with Rick Berman, originally wanted the prequel to be more rugged and dangerous. Braga's starting concept was that the NX-01 Enterprise really was the lone human vessel in deep space. And they were in over their heads in a dangerous galaxy. With Enterprise's technology relatively primitive and with no allies to rely on, well, be careful of uh, highlighting my text there, uh, the Enterprise's inexperienced crew would have been thrown in the deep end of the cosmos. And Braga envisioned Enterprise Season 1 ending with a damaged and broken NX-01 limping back to Earth because nothing makes better television than limping. However... Multiple factors watered down Braga's more ambitious plans for Enterprise. Braga and Berman had to answer to UPN because uh, they were doing such great work. Uh, plus, Berman also didn't want to stray too far from the Star Trek formula that had proven successful since Star Trek The Next Generation back in 1987. Enterprise became a more recognizable and predictable Star Trek series that unfortunately bled viewers. Manny Cotto joining Enterprise and taking over season four showrunner injected the prequel with new energy and focus. And he, and he serialized the series. Unfortunately, the creative improvements couldn't save Enterprise from being canceled in season four. However, in recent years, Star Trek Enterprises found a new, more appreciative audience who discovered the prequel through streaming, period. I don't know, fellas, if I really see what good this particular article did. Eric, I feel like you're the most enthusiastic uh, Enterprise 
uh, aficionado of all of us, please expound. Well, I completely disagree with this <laughs> article. I mean, um, what you guys have to remember, or what anybody thinking about this article has to remember, is that warp drive. Uh, okay, I'm going to get a little mathy here. Warp drive is an exponential curve. That means that warp 2 is exponentially faster than warp 1, and warp 3 is exponentially faster than warp 2. So when you're talking about a warp 5 vessel, you are talking about a vessel that is out further than any other vessel has been. And you're also talking about a vessel that is more advanced than any other vessel out there. Remember at the time of the NX-01 Enterprise, there were only two vessels that actually had the same design and they were the most advanced ships and they were the only ones that had the warp five drive. So the fact that you are out there alone and that kind of stuff, yes, maybe you're not entirely alone, but I challenge you to find uh, a, a, set of times in Star Trek Enterprise when somebody came to save them. Because most of the time in Star Trek Enterprise, and they have to deal with it themselves, right? It's not a, like, I can call the Yamato, and the Yamato's going to come save me, or I can call this Excelsior class or whatever. No, it's not like that. These guys are out there by themselves. So I feel like this article kind of, like, misrepresents what Star Trek Enterprise was all about. Because to me the show actually did feel like pioneering, especially in that first season when, you know, they they talk about how uh, Jonathan's dad designed this new engine that, like, allows them to go out further than they'd ever been before, and they're interacting with the Vulcans for the first... Okay, what does this article say? The Vulcans were... I can't remember what, what they characterized them as. I will say, uh, Jim always says the Vulcans were dinks. <laughs> in Star Trek Enterprise, I'll say that I think the Vulcans were a really interesting part of the early years of Star Trek Enterprise because I believe that if aliens came to our planet and influenced our development, there would be some consternation there in terms of our own pride, right? We would start to develop our own technologies based on the new knowledges that we gained, and yet we would find it uh, difficult within ourselves to to give any kind of credit or credence to the fact that somebody else helped us develop this technology. So I actually find the balance of Archer's attitude towards the Vulcans and the Vulcans' attitude towards the humans in season one of Enterprise to be refreshing and actually really a cool part of the series. So that's just a small part of what I disagree with on this article. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a real dismissive tone to this too. That there is. I don't really. Yeah. It seems like somebody's got like a, what we like to call sour grapes, right? You know, but uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, I I always thank Eric because Eric really, uh, you know, got me to go back and look at a bunch of the uh, uh, earlier enterprises that I had like missed during a crazy time of life when it first came out. Right? Was just did not have the time to watch a TV show. And I've really enjoyed going back and looking at it. I think uh, time has been good to this show. I mean, kind of like a nice bottle of wine that you put away. Uh, uh, hey, Star Trek Wines, if you're listening, uh, we're kind of due. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's like you take it out after a, a little bit of time in the cellar, and it's really, it really opens up nicely. And it's really interesting, right, in particular if you're an Andorian fan. Um, I think mm -hmm. there's, a lot, there's a lot going on there. So it's certainly uh, – not a show to just write off. And I think if, if there's listeners who have not watched uh, Enterprise, um, you know, I would, 
I would encourage my friend Eric, what would be really cool is you, on the Trek Talk and Facebook page, you should put up your list of uh, your recommended top, top Enterprise episodes mm-hmm. that, that you're, you've got some that are real juicy that you're, fan, that you're a fan of. I, I think if you put that up there, I bet you that uh, viewership on the uh, Paramount Plus channel of those episodes would spike. So that's what that's I think. That's a good idea. Do. That's a great idea, my friend. People would like yeah. that because, yeah, don't don't overlook this show. There's good stuff there. Well, I got to say that I think – Sorry, late this, Manny Cotto. Uh, <laughs> man, when, we, when Manny took over season four, I think everybody would agree that season four is one of the best seasons of NFL. Oh, yeah, it was really good. I mean, Manny, he, he knew what Star Trek – he gave the fans what they wanted, and he knew how to do it. And I think that was missing – from the first three, not to take away from the first three seasons, but I think Manny came in and, and got it back on track a little bit too late, but he did. And I, and I, I can see what he's saying about the, about the beginning, because face it, I think everybody was expecting Star Trek enterprise, the formation of the Federation, right? Isn't that what you guys wanted to see? Hmm. And that was something that, for, for whatever reason, they they stayed away from. They had all the cards on the table. They had their straight flush laid right out, but they never, they didn't show their whole card. They never went the distance. They teased us with Andorians. They teased us with Vulcans. They teased us with Tellarites. They gave us the awesome Shran, but they didn't weave the threads to pull it all together. Okay, I think Jim, what... I, got, we, I got an idea for a show. We need to talk about this because this particular topic that you're talking about is a deep, deep well from which we can draw content. Yeah. There are a whole bunch of reasons why they didn't make season five and why season five would have probably been the best season of Star Trek Enterprise and they never got there. The, 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 so many of the problems without getting into too much detail reside in the things that they were sort of forced to talk about in season three, season, yeah, late season two and early season three. Yeah. There's a lot going well, on there. I think, Manny, I think Manny Cota is just expressing his, well, was because he passed away. I think he was expressed in this particular article. He's just expressing his, his uh, maybe anger and dissatisfaction of not being able to tell the stories the way that they, he thought they should have been told and being told what to do. So at any rate, that, 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 that wraps up our show guys, believe it or not. And I hope no. you enjoyed our on the empath. I hope you learned a lot about the empath. <laughs> I know I did. I, I know I, I did for sure. Uh, it was a great conversation. So uh, next week, next week on, on Eric's recommendation, we're going to talk about a classic Voyager two-parter, The Year of Hell. And uh, that's going to be a lot of fun uh, because I believe, was it Manny Cota or Mike Pillar? Mike Pillar. I think it was Mike Pillar wanted to make that a full season arc. And instead we mm-hmm. got a two-parter. But we're going to talk about that next week. So if you're a Voyager fan, you want to tune in next week for sure. So I want to take this opportunity to say thank you so much to Paul for hanging out and Trek talking with us. Thank you, Paul. And I, I want to say thank you uh, so much to Eric for hanging out and Trek talking with us. Thank you, Eric. Absolutely. Always a pleasure, gents. Thanks. And thank you so much to David for hanging out with us tonight. Thank you, David. Yeah, that was fun. 
And, of course, thank you to Charles for Trek talking with us. Thank you so much, Charles. Thank you. Definitely in conversation. Lots of fun. Lots of fun. And uh, as always, guys, I just want to say stay safe and be good to each other. Star Trek fans are the best fans. You better believe that. I'm your most excellent host, Uncle Jim, saying hailing frequencies are closed. Good night, everybody. Good night. Live long and prosper. Bye, all. Let's see what's out there. Engage. We are unable to get to the phone right now because we are busy living in a plane of existence your feeble mortal minds cannot possibly comprehend. Furthermore, it's pointless to leave a message because we, of course, already knew that you would call and we simply do not care.